Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. Today we're here with Andrew Polk, who's a founding partner of Trivium China, a Beijing-based research firm. Formerly, he was director of China research at Medley Global Advisors and chief economist at the Conference Board's China Center. He recently published a preview of the 19th Party Congress, in which he explains this year's Congress can be best understood as a referendum on Xi Jinping's first term, which has seen Xi promote a conservative agenda that has attempted to reinsert the party more forcefully into politics, society, and the economy. Andrew, welcome to Econ Talk, and congratulations on your three-month-old business at Trivium. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jordan. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, Great. So before we get into uh, the Party Congress, I'd love to hear a little more about your China story. So uh, what first hooked you and, and uh, kept you coming back to the Middle Kingdom? Yeah, well, so in 2006, I moved to Hong Kong to teach. I had been teaching uh, in the States and was doing Teach for America, finished uh, my program, and wanted to have another adventure, so moved with a friend to Hong Kong. Uh, that was the time where, um, you know, that was kind of the height of China's export powerhouse, or um, uh, move into an export powerhouse. Yeah, looking back, it was a time when uh, the, the current account, the trade account, had their largest surpluses, so China's really kind of coming out at that time, trying to be a leader of the... Um, emerging world. And so during that time, they had a, the first AFRICAC meeting, which is China meeting with the leaders of a bunch of African nations. And so that just kind of concept, watching that from Hong Kong for the first time, intrigued me. And so I moved back to DC, uh, went to SAIS, studied China, studied Chinese, and then landed a job back at the conference board and the rest is history. Beautiful. Well, um, do you have a favorite party congress? And and what is a party congress? Good, well, that's that's a that's a good question. There've been they're all important. Um, you can go back to 1992, 1997 for um, important developments in terms of China's uh, reform program, but um, really if you look back at the last 5 or 6, they've all done important things. Um, so I don't know that I can pick a favorite. Um, but what is a party congress? It's basically a meeting of the top party leadership where the next central committee, um, which is the 200 most important people in China, are chosen. And then from there, they also choose the next Politburo, which is the 25 most important people in China, and the standing committee of the Politburo, which is the small group of people that are leading the Politburo itself, that the number of people on that body has changed over time. Right now it's at seven. Um, and, and so we'll see how many there are at the end of this party Congress. But they also basically talk about the last five years, what the party has accomplished and what the party wants to accomplish over the next five years. And they really set the agenda um, for the coming time frame. So that's sort of what a party congress is. It's about leadership reshuffling and sort of setting the agenda. Um, and and there will be a lot of things to look for in terms of figuring out what the next five years hold for China um, at this upcoming 19th party congress. Great. So uh, relative to history, how does the 19th party congress rank in terms of potential impact, potential outcomes relative to past ones? That's a good question. I have to uh, caveat some of this from the standpoint of uh, the, the piece that you mentioned that we put out 
was done in conjunction with um, my two business partners, uh, Etherine and Trey McCarver, and Trey McCarver, who are really the politics experts. So when I talk about this, I'm really thinking about it more from the economics point of view um, and sort of what leadership changes means will mean for the economy and what the policy trajectory for the economy will be. Um, in terms of the overall importance of the 19th Party Congress, it's it's hard to say. There have been, like I said, some important ones, and 92 and 97 come to mind because you think about um, sort of SOE reform, you think about um, opening up to the world that was kind of done under the leadership of, of Deng, Deng Xiaoping, even though he wasn't uh, general secretary at that time. So those were really important ones. I think this one is unique in that Xi Jinping is a unique leader. So the the future of China is somewhat more uncertain. Which way is China going to go in terms of you know opening up to the rest of the world, um, its role in global leadership? So it's up there in importance. It's hard to rank them overall. But this one, I think the really unique thing about this one so far in terms of the lead up to it is kind of the opacity around it. We had thought for the last 10 or 15 years that the processes around party congresses were becoming more straightforward, understandable, and predictable. And this party congress has certainly sort of marked a change back towards opacity um, that has made, you know, made for a break from the past 15 years. Sure. So one of the... Um uh, you know, there's definitely uh, perceived to be a pretty wide range of potential outcomes. Um, and one of the uh, questions that's getting the most play is uh, just how committed she is to his uh, informal two-year term limit. Um, so if he pushes and succeeds for a third term, um, what would that mean? What would the political, what would the economic implications in particular be um, uh, for, for a 15-year uh, spot at the helm? Good question. Um, the, the straight answer is we don't really know. <laughs> we can make some educated guesses um, about what it would mean. I think the most important thing, so, so a c- couple of things to, to, to back up quickly. One is we don't know whether Xi Jinping is going to plan to stay on past his, the, tr- you know, the traditional two, uh, two term, uh, not limit, but two term norm. Um, and so we'll be looking for clues at this party Congress as to whether that's going to happen. One of the clues will be whether or not there's a clear successor that's put on the standing committee. Uh, if this party Congress follows tradition, we would know pretty clearly um, who would replace both Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang um, in five years' time. We would know because they'd be sort of the, the only two members of the pol- the standing committee that were young enough to serve for three more years sure. according to, to party norms. So that's one thing that we'll be looking for. But if we don't get that, it doesn't necessarily mean that she stands a play to plans to stay on. It's an indication that he might, but it's not um, you know in the bag at that point. So we'll look for whether or not there's a clear successor. And if there's not, um, it's an indication that maybe she wants to stay on. But if he ultimately does... Really, the, the, the most important implication, I think, is that there's clear buy-in to Xi Jinping's leadership. Xi Jinping, for as powerful as he is, can't operate autonomously 
Um, if he's going to make big changes to party norms, he's going to have significant buy-in from the rest of the party elite. And so what that tells us is that there's uh, the rest of the party elite has basically approved of Xi's program to date and has bought into allowing him to continue that program over, say, another five years, 10 years, 15 years, however long he wants to stay on, or you know he may be able to stay on. And from an economic standpoint, what that tells us is that policy, the, the, there's also agreement, likely agreement around policy. So policy implementation, the policy program should become clearer and, and better implemented. Uh, I think that's the only concrete thing that we'll know about um, she uh, about a potential um, she breaking the norm of, of two terms. Sure. So before we um, jump into the uh, economic policy outcomes, could you uh, quickly walk us through potential successors? Sure. So the potential successors, most, I mean, there's two real front runners um, the, that people are focused on. First is Hu Chunhua. He's a member of the Politburo and is likely going to continue to be a member of the Politburo. Um, he's currently the governor of Guang, or excuse me, the party secretary of Guangdong, which is an important province, um, largest province economically in China. Um, and, and so we'll look to see whether or not he gets elevated to the standing committee. The second, so the challenge around uh, who is that um, he's been groomed to be a party leader for many years, but he is well known to be a protege of Hu Jintao, the mm. previous general secretary. And in Xi Jinping's China, that can be a liability. So we're not sure. So he's, if um, he is elevated to the standing committee, he'd have a good shot of either being premier or general secretary. And that would suggest that sort of the traditional party apparatus is, um, and the traditional party norms are kind of carrying the day, and Xi Jinping is not able to, to necessarily uh, handpick his successor. The second person we're watching closely is a guy named Chen Minar. He is currently party secretary of Chongqing. He, would, he replaced Sun Zhengsai, who was recently deposed as the party secretary there, uh, and he moved over from, uh, from Guizhou, where he was party secretary. Um, he's well known to be a Xi Jinping ally. They worked together in Zhejiang uh, when she was party secretary there. Uh, and so if he is promoted to the standing committee, first of all, it'd be an extremely fast promotion because he was not previously on the Politburo. That's not unprecedented. But um, it would, if he's on the standing committee, be a good shot of him taking over as general secretary. And I think people would read that as she having put his imprature on on. Chin as as the successor. Great, thanks for that. So, um, in the second half of your uh, of your report, you write that party work reports, which are the um, one of the outcomes of of party congresses, are best conceptualized as a wish list of the CCP's goals in the coming term. So, it's the most logical place to to detect shifts in policy and new priorities. So, what are the priorities um, and range of outcomes in this report for for Xi's various um, economic reform priorities? Well, so the, let's first start with um, uh, with the role of the market in uh, in the Chinese economy. Sure. So, okay, if we're going to start with the role of the market, there's a few things we're going to look at. One is one of the overarching elements of Xi Jinping's first five years have been an effort to reinvigorate 
to clean up the party, the Communist Party. And the more party control there is, the more party emphasis uh, there is, we can expect sort of less market driven outcomes, right? This is about the party wanting more control over the state's assets, more say in how the both society and economy function. And so that's any kind of language around deepening that move back to the party away from the government will be a sign that the that um, the, the likely that the market is also going to lose out in that process. And so um, that's the sort of language that you'll look for. We saw similar language in the 18th Party Congress, which was in 2012, and um, we're fairly certain that Xi Jinping is going to signal um, that that program, which he has really been his main priority of the past five years, will continue. So um, one of the things you, you write about in your report is has been the sort of schizophrenic economic policy over the past five years. Um, so even if... Uh, this uh, the 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 policy that you just spoke to gets gets um, you know written in 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 stone letters. Does that really mark a potential turning point, um, or should we expect sort of more of the same back and forth um, when it comes to uh, these reforms? That's a good point, um, and yeah, we sh- we should expect things that to move and start starts and stops, right? Uh, kind of halting progress one way or the other. The re- the reason. In our view, over the past five years, we've seen um, not terribly good economic management in China is because Xi Jinping has been changing things so quickly from a personnel and party uh, governance uh, standpoint that the uh, goals or key performance indicators, if you will, uh, for local government actors have proliferated. And it's not necessarily that... um, people don't want to carry out Xi's agenda, it's that they don't necessarily know what it is. Or am I supposed to close capacity or keep em, uh, keep employment up? Am I supposed to um, go for growth or am I supposed to protect the environment? And so they're trying to figure it out. And what we'll look for is maybe a little bit more clarity. You see in areas where Xi Jinping has expressed a clear priority that things get done quickly. For example, the financial de-risking that happened this year happened pretty much immediately and in, and uni- was uniformly implemented by regulators after Xi Jinping designated financial risk as a national security risk. So what we look for is a clearer um, policy agen- agenda from Xi on the economy because it really hasn't been his priority up until about uh, you know, six months to a year ago. Previously, he was more focused on the party itself and society and, and other issues. Sure. So um, one of the things that drives uh, Chinese economic policy is the growth target. Um, could you talk a little bit about the perverse incentives involved in it and um, potential changes we could see in this upcoming party congress? Yeah. So basically, um, China's trying to go grow too fast. It's trying to grow at 6.5%. Um, that's the growth target. They want to do that in order to uh, so that they can have a, a doubled per capita GDP from 2010 to 2020. So that's the number they have to hit in order to to get that arithmetic to work. The problem is the fundamental trend growth rate of China is much lower than that. And if you're trying to grow above trend, the only way to do it is by piling on more and more debt. And so China has this growing debt issue that's been accumulating really since the global financial crisis. 
Um, so that's sort of the perverse incentive is that, you know, everyone in the system has to hit a certain growth target, whether you're a prefectural level cadre or a provincial level cadre. And to do that, you've got to borrow more and more from the bank so that you can basically get to that uh, growth target by investing a bunch in infrastructure and real estate and those kinds of things that are not particularly productivity enhancing investments. Now, we know that at the top reaches of the party, there is a robust debate about whether or not the growth target should be ditched um, or at least lowered. And we've, we've seen utterances from Xi that were, issued, that were spoken at the um, Politburo meeting in November 2016, where he literally said, um, growth is not a numbers game or a speed game. And he basically said, listen, people, what do people care about? They care about healthcare. They care about jobs. They care about sort of um, overall standard of living. They don't necessarily care about the GDP growth rate. And in fact, if we tell people that we've grown at a certain rate and have in order to achieve the, the moniker of a moderately prosperous society, people aren't going to believe us if they don't feel like their lives have improved. Sure. And so he is clearly thinking about this issue and whether or not to move away from it. Um, we, we don't think at the party Congress he will say the growth target's dead, but we could see more, more um, verbiage along those lines of um, emphasizing the quality of economic growth rather than just the quantity. Sure. So at the end of the day, um, now, basically, if you want to get promoted, you have to hit a certain growth target. Um, so um, my sense is that we'll see real changes if the promotion incentives um, within the party change. Is that is that about right? That's exactly right. And, you know, one that that to some extent has been happening. The environment has become a much bigger um, issue in terms of promotion. But that that we're in the process of changing those incentives. And that goes back to my point earlier about um about people, you know, local cadres not knowing which is the real and true and genuine KPI that they need to hit. They local cadres need to be convinced by top leadership and shown in practice that the people who are best protecting the environment are going to get promoted. Until that happens, uh, the incentive structure is going to remain murky. Sure. So this this certainly ties into our next question about bad debt. Um, because, uh, you know, from, uh, from the, from the top down, we have folks with incentives to, um, to, 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 to pile on short term, uh, uh, short term growth. But what other things besides changing, um, you know, promotion structures and, um, you know, the number of the growth, number of growth rate could, could she do to, to, to signal that he wants to, uh, uh, keep the financial sector on a, on a relatively tight leash? Yeah, so well, there's two issues here. Um, one is financial sector leverage itself. So banks lending to each other, borrowing from the wholesale market, which is basically you know, borrowing from other banks to fund themselves. Typically, you want your banks to just take deposits and make loans. Bread and butter stuff, right? Um, but the banks in China have increasingly been doing more and more speculative activity. So we do think that he may, you know, sort of reemphasize this, um, this notion that the financial system and financial risk are part of national security and national security risk. If he does emphasize that, we'd expect the banking crackdown that we've seen since April to continue going forward. The real um, 
mantra here is kind of this back to basics idea. It's not unlike sort of the reaction to the global financial crisis when folks in the West thought banks had become, you know, had been doing too much speculative proprietary trading and they wanted banks to sort of go back to being retail entities. And that's where you get things like the Volcker rule uh, in a splitting of proprietary trading um, out of, you know, the retail banks. So, you know, this is something that China's grappling with that other countries have grappled with as well. The other thing, strictly from a debt, when you, so that's financial debt. When you talk about overall debt, um, the issue there in China is corporate debt. So in the U.S., it was, it was really household debt. People had borrowed too much against their houses. Here, it's an issue of corporate debt. And so, you know, she has, has indicated, you know, for, channeling his economic advisors that, you know, debt is sort of the original sin of, of um, China's economic challenges and that the sort of holders of that original sin, if you will, is SOEs. And so what we look for there is a genuine um, both emphasis on trying to tackle SOE debt, but also a plan for that and a plan to improve the governance of SOEs because even if you somehow deal with the debt, if the government takes it on or the banks write it off or you, you somehow get it off the, excuse me, the SOE's balance sheet, well, then you have to make sure they don't do it again. And that's all about SOE reform and better SOE governance. And that's really been the big sticking point in, refor- in the reform program so far under Xi Jinping. So we'll look to see if a, how much that's emphasized at the Congress, and B, following on from the Congress, if there's concrete, specific steps taken to address those issues. Sure. So um, lastly, uh, one of the, uh, the the rumors going around is that um, one of Xi's theories of governments is going gonna, is gonna to be bumped up a notch and uh, put on the same level of uh, uh, the likes of, of, of Mao and Dane. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, just for a, a, a general sense of your role of this, these types of theory debates in uh, Chinese economic policy today, and if uh, he does, he does make it to the um, to the uh, circle of heroes, I guess I don't know um, what um, what what potential implications that could have. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I mean, again, it goes back to um, I mean, if 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 Xi Jinping gets an eponymous theory or thought put into the, um, the party constitution, he'd be the first person to ever get that done while being in office. And it would basically, if he gets Xi Jinping thought put in there, there's a hierarchy to these, to these um, concepts. That would put him on the level, essentially, as Mao, who has Mao Zedong thought, which is in the party constitution. Theory, a Xi Jinping theory, would put him on the level of Deng. And, and then if he doesn't get his name in, he'd be more on the level of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. When you think about um, the sort of hierarchy of these can- canonical figures, again, you go back to if he gets this theory, then you there's clearly huge buy-in behind him. And that shows that the system's unified and potentially ready to make big changes or make hard choices. So I think that's sort of the clearest takeaway that we can take from that. But, you know... Even more um, intensely, I guess, if if his theory, especially in an eponymous way, is added to the party constitution, um, then it, while he's in power, then it becomes currently, um, you know, against the constitution not to 
obey essentially what Xi Jinping says. So that really would show how how powerfully how powerful you know he has become, and again how much buy-in there is behind him. The last thing I'll say is, you know, people are basically expecting that his governing concepts will be much more comprehensive than many of the other uh, conceptual additions to the the party constitution. And that would sort of indicate that, you know, we've sort of moved from socialism, which, you know, people talk about the first stage of China's development, to sort of becoming wealthy, uh, which is the second stage under Deng Xiaoping. And then the third stage would be China becoming strong on a comprehensive fashion under Xi Jinping. And that would just be sort of a sea change in, in how the party sees itself, how China sees itself, both domestically and its role in the world. Great. Thanks. So just to sum up on the party Congress, I'm curious if you think that um, these outcomes will generally track together, like he'll either have a big uh, a big party Congress or sort of strike out. Um, and if uh, he sort of underperforms uh, in October, does this spell uh, a lame duck for the next five years or will he still have enough juice to um, to, to pursue some of the reforms he's hoping to uh, hoping to achieve? That's a great question. We do so right now. It looks like he's on track to get most of what he wants. If you look at sort of the the moves in the run up to the Congress in terms of who's been placed where, personnel wise, um, it looks like Xi Jinping's pretty well on track to get a lot of allies on both the Politburo and the and the Standing Committee. Um, but he, we, you know, he is not all powerful. He does have to he may do some horse trading. So I would say if he doesn't get everything he wants, that would, we should read that as fairly, um, typical. Um, if, if, if he does strike out, um, that would be a very surprising and I think it would be very concerning for economic management over the next five years. I think you probably to your question, they, these, Dynamics probably will generally track together. Um, you know, everyone's generally expecting Xi to come away with a very strong hand and to be sort of his the 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 strong hold that he's had on the the party, or everyone sort of assumes and assesses he has will be sort of acknowledged and cemented at the nineteenth party congress. So that's kind of where we're tracking. Um, and again, I said I think that would be positive for policy implementation because you know once you have a sh- greater hold over the actors within the system. You can, you know, in theory, have them uh, act out your your policy agenda um, more concretely. If he strikes out, then that's, you know, then that's actually quite concerning from a standpoint of uh, who's running the ship at a very important time in China's economic development. And I would, I would say then we'd probably see a pretty scattered, uh, form of economic management over the next five years, which based on China's current economic challenges in terms of financial sector and debt and everything else, that would, that would actually be pretty concerning. Great. Thanks for that. So to uh, wrap up, I have a few um, final questions for you. So first off, if you could um, pitch your two favorite books on China and then maybe one that you wish you could read. So on a topic that you don't think has been, uh, has been properly covered yet. That's a, okay. Good question. Good question. Um, I would say, so two favorite books on China. I, you, you warned me this question was coming. I still didn't prepare particularly good answers. I will say one that's forthcoming is 
we, I actually don't know the title of it yet, unfortunately, but it's by a guy named Denny McMahon, who just has been writing this book um, at the, the, the Wilson Center for the past year and a half and is now working at, at the Paulson Center. Um, and he was a journalist here for the Wall Street Journal for a really long time. It's going to be a comprehensive look at, at China's economy and specifically the financial system. So look for a book to drop by Denny McMahon in the next, next uh, six months or so. Um, otherwise, I would say, you know, Evan Osnos' book, um, The Age of Ambition, is just a really good snapshot of China as it stands right now. And some of the complexities and contradictions of the society when it comes to um, the, uh, the aspirations of each individual in a sea of 1.4 billion people. Um, so that one is definitely one to check out. Sure. And one that I haven't read. Uh, so, like, and this is one that I hope to write, actually, is, um, you know, Fraser Howey's book, Red, and Fraser Howey, and he had a co-author that never gets mentioned, and now I'm forgetting his name, um, <laughs> um, is uh, his book, Red Capitalism, was kind of the explainer of China's financial system, but it's now, like, a decade old, and, like, an, up, uh, an update on that, specifically with how the various financial structures have... Um, have evolved in, in recent years and, you know, explaining in particular the, how China's inner bank market works, which is really the nexus of everything financial in China. That's the book I want to read. Um, so if anybody's out there and wants to write it, that would be, uh, it, it, you're only going to sell 10 copies, but I'll buy one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks. And lastly, uh, where can folks find you? Uh, they can find me in Beijing um, uh, at uh, we're, we're down in Guomao at the uh, Ocean Park Office Center. And if you don't want stalkers on, on <laughs> online, perhaps. <laughs> so we are we are at triviumchina.com. Um, uh, you can find our website. We have a, uh, a every day we send out a a daily email that is. We think pretty good. It's snappy. It's uh, focused. You can read it in three or four minutes and be caught up on China. It's, um, uh, you can sign up at our website, TriviumChina.com. You can uh, see me on Twitter at uh, AndrewPolk81, uh, giving away my age there. But, um, but yeah, uh, please, please come visit the website, sign up for the tip sheet, and uh, fo follow us on Twitter. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much. And maybe we'll, we'll catch up after and see just how well, uh, she pulled out, um, pulled out as party Congress. Great. Sounds good. Yeah. Right now it's all speculation, but we'll, uh, we'll know soon enough. Thanks very much for the invitation. Absolutely. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code PREPARED22. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. 
Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.